Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. You're here with us for another installment of Worldview Wednesday. With me in the studio today are Nathan Oblak and Joe Boot, as usual, and we're also pleased to have Mike Thiessen with us. And Joe, Michael, you're here in particular because over the weekend, across the country, there were several different uh, outdoor public worship events that were organized. Uh, A couple of them happened in Manitoba, uh, and one that uh, you were both invited to speak to at, at the Ontario Legislature in Queen's Park. So I thought we would uh, start off our time together here by getting some reflections on that event. Uh, You know, who was there? What happened? What's been the result? What's been some of the feedback so far? And what was uh, what was the goal of of gathering publicly at uh, at this time? Well, it was a a wonderful occasion, actually, uh, on Sunday when a group of churches from across Ontario sort of spontaneously gathered for worship uh, outside of Queen's Park. And, uh, well, nobody really knew how many people were going to show up. I mean, how long's a piece of string? Uh, but it was quite remarkable. I think a uh, number of um, fairly reliable people estimated around 1,500 or so showed up. Um, and uh, there was singing, there were prayers, there was preaching, and a quite remarkable response. There's been something of a media blackout of the event. Uh, media doesn't seem very interested in in, in covering it unless, uh, you know, tickets are being handed out to politicians like on Thursday. Um, but uh, it was a it was a great public testimony, a good public witness. The 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 goal evidently was to, you know, make a declaration about the presence of the church the centrality of the church's gathering for worship, the essential character of the life of the church in our society, and of course to declare the lordship of Christ over government, over the nations, and as well to make uh, people aware of the, the struggle and the suffering that the, these uh, lockdowns are, are actually causing. So it was, a, it was a very exciting day to see so many people from so many different church backgrounds, from so many parts of Ontario, uh, coming together to 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 worship. Yeah, the Lord bless us with uh, wonderful weather. <laughs> We've got snow today and rain on Saturday. Um, Ten degrees and sunshine. I think it was, it was. absolutely gorgeous. Um, and what really transpired was the word of the Lord preached into this situation. the The desire to share the gospel. We've got a number of people protesting around Toronto regularly who graciously showed up to the event just to participate in it. And um, we clearly talked about the, this, the importance of our presence during COVID-19 and not to just recede back and not to be deemed um, inessential. You know, really, that's, that's, that's what I thought we were doing. And I think that that happened quite well. Hmm. So something I wanted us to address today is uh, I know recently all of us have been inundated with emails and phone calls 
Uh, one of the reasons why is just thanking uh, both of you, Joe and Michael, for uh, giving the talks that you did at this this worship protest, but also um, expressing uh, this issue uh, that there are people finding themselves in a position where, and, and these are doctors, nurses, police officers, and teachers, where they, along with many of their colleagues, are recognizing uh, that there are these ridiculous and destructive uh, responses to COVID happening right now, uh, but they feel forced to, at least on a practical level, to submit to the COVID narrative. And if they don't, they're worried about being reprimanded. Um, so I wonder what kind of advice could we give these, these folks? Yeah, so we all know how fear... Uh, pushes us back into the corner. We've all been on the schoolyard where somebody's doing something utterly ridiculous and every other kid on the playground can say, that's not right. But it there's always a cost that comes along with being the person who stands up and says, stop it. Um, so there's a few things that are really important. I think first thing that is very important is uh, Christ's law compels us not to bear false witness. Uh, one of the most wonderful commands given to man on earth is don't lie to everybody else. And so when we open our eyes and we open our ears and we look around, you know, and the average person I talk to, they can't even tell me of one person they know who has had COVID, let alone the 15 people who have died from it. So what the severity or not aside, the level of fear just needs to come down and we need to carefully and graciously tell people to not be consumed by fear. And, and the reason we do that is we talk about the truth of scripture and then we talk about the truth that is also there before us in the environment. The second thing would be is to realize that as, as a bunch of Christians who, um, because I know I'm getting, you know, you mentioned all of those emails. Most of those people who are connecting with us are Christians. And then there's a number of people outside of our Christian sphere that are also connecting with us about this. But for Christians, we have to realize that we've been in an environment of the marketed, seeker-sensitive church that for the last 20 years, with a few strengths, but uh, so many weaknesses, we've basically boiled our faith down to this. If you please pagans and you make things really palatable for them, they will accept Jesus. And if you don't make things as palatable as possible, then you've done something wrong when they reject Christ. And so you just got to think about how that year after year just washes over us. It just, it just writes on our minds and on, on the, the paper of our hearts hey, uh, you're being a good witness if you're pleasing people. And I don't think we Christians realize how much that is embedded uh, into our own um, practices out in the real world. Um, David Wells calls this um, Christians who live with God on the inside and not God on the outside. As long as me and God are good where he's inside of me and I'm virtually affecting nowhere else in the world, me and God are still good. The, 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 and you see how that, you see how that then works, right? People can walk around and say, oh, I think worship's important. 
well, as long as I think it's important, me and God are good because he's on the inside. He knows how I feel. But if I don't do anything out in the real world, that doesn't really matter. You know, it's a new form of Gnosticism, really. But um, the only way to overcome that is to speak truth into the situation. The scriptures do not describe a God residing only in me. He is transcended in the universe, and I have the privilege of his Holy Spirit working in me and shaping me and molding me. But that does not abdicate uh, me being an active vessel in the real world to see God's vision of the world come, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, don't lie. Tell the truth, even if it's going to cost you. I think I know someone recently where that cost him something. And really um, navigate the hostile waters you're about to go into. I, I don't see any other way forward. Just to, sorry, but just, Jill, before you uh, respond to that, I think it's worthwhile to emphasize uh, Nathan's point there that we, we've been getting several emails, but uh, in, in a lot of those emails, they're saying, you know, it's not just me, it's me and, you know, 70% of the people who I work with, That's who right. I'm in community with, mm -hmm. who all I know sort of on a ones and twos basis, we all think the same way, but we're all sort of being. At, we're all at risk of sort of being picked off if we are the one speaking out and we can't, we can't count on people who might think of the same way as we do, as you mentioned, Michael, we can't count on them standing with us. Yeah, yeah we have to, I think, uh, I think Michael's right, we have to stand with truth in these situations. And I think the point that you're making, Ryan, which I think is a good one, is if the emperor has no clothes, somebody's got to say it. Now, what we don't realize is the power that there is in standing up and saying something. Right? The assumption is that everybody is feeling isolated and alone in their situation, maybe as a nurse or a teacher or as a doctor or as a police officer. And until they actually announce their reservations, their concern, their um, objection to the current situation, they won't know how many other people around them uh, are ready to stand with them as well. This is what leadership means. And this is why it's frustrating and discouraging when church leaders don't uh, voice their concerns in the way that they should, because people are looking to and for leadership in these situations, because a lot of people recognize, um, you mentioned one police officer that contacted who's talking about so many of his colleagues who think this whole thing is nonsense and they don't want to enforce these absurd regulations but they're afraid to speak up. They're afraid to uh, resist because they're afraid that their supervisor may discipline them or what else or whatever else. But actually there may be lots of people in the police force who take that stand. And the same in the life of the church until pastors and leaders speak up. Um, they don't find out how many people there actually are who recognize there's a problem. And there's nothing more powerful than standing together that's what the um, event was called, actually, in uh, Toronto at the Legislative Buildings. It was called Standing Together uh, Worship. And the, 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 the power that there is in that, can you imagine if, if churches across, say, Manitoba, where this drive-in uh, service was blockaded by the police, or if uh, hundreds of churches across Toronto said, you know what, we're opening. We're opening. Um, and uh, the significance that there would be in that. But if people don't speak up, 
and don't say something, fear is allowed to, to, to reign. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And one of the things I thought of the moment you said that was, and ironically, this is the way that Jesus said the gospel would pre be preached to the nations, right? Like he didn't say you're going to go out and you're going to come up with a significant branding. You're going to have the most sparkly, um, wonderful, I don't know. I don't want to say programs uh, per se, but you're going to have this great platform. He said that, that you're going to be dragged in front of your local magistrates. Beware when all men speak well of you. Yeah. And particularly, uh, you know, Joe, you've said this a number of times. I've recently written about this. This is what Paul did to fulfill taking the gospel into Rome when he appealed to Festus and uh, not uh, to Festus appealed to Caesar. So this is ironically, pe people say, oh, it's going to hurt your gospel witness. What well, it's going to hurt my gospel witness to obey the word of the Lord, to tell the truth, to count the cost and see that where that leads me. Uh, we've just perverted uh, what evangelism actually is. Yeah. I think that um, we, uh, many of us, our reputations are too good. <laughs> right. We need, uh, uh, we don't want to go to the grave with exceptional reputations. And if, uh, if, if all men speak well of us, then there's something wrong with our witness. And I think, Michael, the point that you've made um, eloquently is that, in fact, if, our, uh, if, if in the life of the church we construe success as people liking us, speaking well of us, the state loving us, the bureaucrats loving us, everybody thinking how wonderful we are, are we sure that we're being truly faithful to Christ at that moment? I mean, in order to get the applause of the culture, you need to go along with the culture. You know, in one of my, one of my analyses a couple of years ago of the Anglican Church in England, I talked about the fact that every time the Anglican Church has a moratorium and, a, a, and pauses for a couple of years of spiritual discernment over a given cultural issue like contraception or divorce or sexuality, it's quite remarkable. Every time they come out of a period of spiritual discernment, they discern that the spirit is leading in exactly the same direction as the culture. And everybody approves. And uh, they've just come out recently. I don't want to get off topic, but uh, they've just come out recently with their first um, uh, response to the whole uh, um, formal response to the whole transgender issue, uh, marriage issue in, in the life of the church. And uh, one of my colleagues in England, Ben John, um, is now being in, uh, investigated uh, for a hate crime um, because he had the audacity to question the validity of the Anglican's um, initial video response, which begins with two transgendered individuals who are both clergy um, in this video. In other words, it's a, it's a full endorsement of the agenda. Now, if every time we come to a point where we're looking at the culture, we're looking at what's going on in the culture, and our objective is to please the culture so that we can be a good witness, there's something, there's something pretty wrong. And usually if, if, a, if everybody's, or the vast majority of people are running off in one direction off the cliff, and, uh, and this is the dominant, the popular, position of media, of culture, of government, 
you can be pretty sure there's something wrong with it. And think about it on a micro level. How many pastors would approve of a husband lying to his wife just because it's easier? Hey, pastor, I'm having an affair on my wife. It's going to be really hard for me to confess my sin, turn away from my sin, and it's going to be really hard for me to tell the truth to my wife. How many pastors have ever in the Bible-believing evangelical world said, it's all good. It's just better to keep status quo. Just, just don't make sure she doesn't find out about it. So it's just like when, when you think on a local level, is it okay to, you know, is it okay to lie to your kids on a regular basis just to make them feel better? Um, you know, we're still with COVID, we're still navigating stuff. I understand. But at the end of the day, you have to look at your local situation and you have to, you know, tell the truth. So yeah, and part of the truth is that Christ commands us to declare the gospel. Yeah. We we baptized right. we baptized people on Sunday morning in Toronto. We had baptisms. We're commanded to baptize, yeah. to disciple people, to gather around the Lord's table. I don't know where the confusion is about how regularly we do that. No. I, I I I thought that to uh, take care of the elderly rather the than the beginning of creation, right? The, the 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 type of the day of rest of the yeah. Sabbath has been established to care for the vulnerable, yeah. Uh, to um, exercise church discipline, all of these things. These are mandates from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't understand what's so difficult about recognizing these are commands, and we're commanded to work six days. You will labor, right? We are commanded that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. I don't understand what, why this is so complicated. What, you know, which of the, we're being so selective now at this point. My concern in the life of the church is how selective we're being about which commands of the Lord Jesus and of Scripture we're actually willing to obey. We're saying, oh, well, there's a bug, there's a virus going around. Mm, okay. So Scripture guides us there. Uh, a, a quarantining of infectious people who have a, a serious disease what else is there to say uh d- 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 there is no caveat in scripture over the care that we have as, as as pastors and leaders over our congregations uh the the ministry of the gospel the proclamation of the word the laying hands upon the sick which is as far as i'm aware a scriptural command and if somebody is sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and go and anoint them with oil how do you do that down a computer? So I just, I, it, it, the mind boggles for me at this point, eight months into this, that we are still struggling with the notion that this is a problem. Here we have something historically unprecedented, historically unprecedented. Michael, you've talked about, I mean, by, just based on what you've said, you're implying at the very least that lies are being told. So let's just think about that for a second, right? So in, in uh, the FDA and the CDC have basically admitted now that there is a major problem with these PCR tests. This is widely acknowledged now. So when a disease prevalence decreases, it's well known that the false positives for this tool 
by the way, it isn't even meant to be a diagnostic tool for mass populations. If somebody is clinically presenting to a doctor or a hospital, that's the time when these tests would typically be used. But in a population with, say, 1% prevalence, only 30% of positive cases will actually have the disease. So why are we not talking about the case-demic as Christian leaders? If you test, if you keep ramping up testing, of course, you're going to get more positive cases. Um, we've got in this project fear, um, people uh, have, have, have compared this COVID to the Spanish flu. Well, here's a reality check. The Spanish flu was 75 times as deadly. This is 1918. 75 times as deadly as COVID-19. There is no comparison between this and the Spanish flu. These temporary restrictions have become an unending suspension of our charter freedoms. They're justified by lies, by misinformation, by gross exaggeration. In, in Alberta, where they've got the, the province severely locked down, the, 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 basically the median age of death from COVID is 84. 84. Can I, can I, let me just say, Michael, and then I come to that. Absolutely. Is I, as far as the last time I read scripture, I've got three score and 10. And if by reason of strength, 80 years and the median age of death, every death is tragic. We know that. We're not denying that. Is 84. In BC, it's 85. It's 85. Kenny, Jason Kenny, and his um, chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Hinshaw, claimed that with, lo with lockdown, 32,000 Albertans would die with lockdown. As of, as of today, 541 people have died of COVID in Alberta. In, in Canada, the total is 12,000. That's a bad flu season, people. Yeah, if you look at the numbers in Ontario alone, 115,000 people die a year in Ontario. So 3,500, those are deaths, but it is a small percentage of the annual death rate. I, I was listening to the news the other day and I was just, my, my blood was boiling as they talked about, you know, the uh, usage of emergency beds has increased a certain percentage. And I want to say, okay, well, that, that means nothing. Tell me what the numbers are, because no. a certain percentage of three. If you've you got know, two in an emergency bed and two more added, sure. Right. So Lisa Bilby from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom shared this stat on November 26th. We have over 30,000 hospital beds with over 7,700 acute care or critical care beds. And currently they're talking about. I think believe, uh, between uh, 159 to 200 being used for COVID patients. That's 2%. So yes, I, I am certainly implying, uh, I, I, I listened to um, a, a one-year journal of the bubonic plague where people are just dying in the streets and literally people are walking around saying, you know, bring out your dad. Look at I get it. Some people are scared of this, but it's it's nothing in comparison. And so we just have to be able to tell that truth. And and even to say that graciously, to say yeah. that's perfectly fine. You're gonna help people, you know. Um, I, I had a wonderful saintly woman tell her entire uh, hairdressing salon, come to church, learn about the Lord. Don't be scared of this thing, because they're all fed up and they don't know where to turn. And she's just telling them, well, 
come learn about the truth at our church. Well, 90, we know that 90% of deaths are basically from 1% of the population. So all these comparisons, these fear-mongering comparisons to Spanish flu and, and other things are, are absolutely ludicrous. Um, and we know that, again, that these, the, these PCR tests, because of the way they go through these cycles, they're trying to amplify the virus. The more cycles they go through, the more dead nucleotides they pick up. And so this constant stoking of fear, this project fear that we're up against is certainly something that um, has to be addressed. Look at what it's doing to people. Um, take Japan, for example. Ryan, uh, what was it that you were just, just there was a few things that you had uh, picked up that are of significance in, in, in this discussion right now in, 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 in reacting to Project Fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, there's been a lot of talk so far about so the, the fear of going against the narrative. But you know, here we are, eight, nine, ten months in. There is, a, there is growing, mounting, powerful evidence of a counter-narrative against this. There's a, a, a growing number of peer-reviewed studies and of reports and official statistics, which I think you're, uh, you're referring to for those uh, Japanese figures. But, uh, and we'll get to that. But the, the New England Journal of Medicine, just a couple of weeks ago, they put out a, uh, a study where they, had, they divided a group of 1,800 U.S. Marines into two control groups. One, one group did, uh, you know, they received all of the personal protective equipment and followed all of the recommended procedures, followed all the distancing measures and so forth. And then another group uh, didn't do any of those, and they, they compared rates of infection. And it's, it was really interesting and uh, kind of funny because neither, in neither group was there meaningful rates of infection. In the, in the protected group, the rate was about 1.9%. It was exactly 1.9%. In the unprotected group, the infection rate was actually lower. It was 1.7%. You're a liar, Ryan. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm New gonna England Journal of Medicine. Oh. Uh, the uh, that uh, that sort of long-awaited uh, study from from Denmark has has come out lately on the Finally. the effects or non-effectiveness of mask wearing to prevent the spread. And I think uh, what you were talking about in Japan, Joe, was that. Uh, the the latest uh, rates of suicide were uh, recently released, and this is uh, this is very tragic. Rates of suicide in Japan for October, and I think uh, I think the figure is that the the rates for October alone. were alone. The month of October two thousand twenty yeah. number of deaths by suicide in Japan mm -hmm. is higher than the twelve months of twenty nineteen all uh, altogether. Yeah. So many people are phoning in on these suicide lines with um, domestic abuse situations and despair and everything else from, from, from COVID. And why, you've got to ask yourself, why are the things that we are talking about that are readily available to people who can actually read, who can go and look at the New England Journal of Medicine, who can go and look at this Danish study, which showed that basically the, the effectiveness of masks is, is simply negligible, it's unproven. It's just not that there's there's no measurable, meaningful, measurable benefit to it, and yet 
if you even mention these kinds of things to many people, it's as though you are some kind of denier. You've just denied the Holocaust. Uh, you've just denied climate change. So you've done, God forbid. You've denied the Holocaust, which is a perfect example of people denying tyranny until it was too late. Like right. the irony is thick. Yeah. And, and, and so much of this is based around trust in the government, which is, even, which is even more disturbing, right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson said, most bad government has grown out of too much government, end quote. And, uh, and that, 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 that is the, the so-called government has moved into so many, civil government has moved into so many aspects of people's lives that when they say, you know, there was a, uh, an article came out recently on a prominent Christian website suggesting that our response to government in these things should be obedience, but not just obedience, immediate obedience, total obedience, not partial obedience, and joyful obedience to government. And yet government has moved into, civil government has moved into education. It's moved into health, welfare, charity, the economy, it's moved its tentacles now into, into controlling and funding and managing so many areas of life that if you were to actually follow the counsel of that article by a uh, well-known pastor in the Toronto area, then um, we, there is basically no area of freedom left. And we'll, 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 we'll come to that maybe uh, in a moment, the whole issue of you know, if, if Paul the Apostle actually meant that in Romans 13, why did he spend so much time in prison? I mean, I still haven't had an answer to this question. I've posed it a few times on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah Paul... these, are, these are category mistakes, effectively, to speak about government health, government education, they government are. school. Absolutely right, Ryan. These are fundamental category mistakes to, say, to, to basically say that these are areas for civil government, which is meant to be a ministry of public justice to manage a harmony of public legal interest period and now we're supposed to obey every single edict without question even in an even though we have an oppositional form of government there's supposed to be an official opposition there isn't a there isn't a clear opposition right now our courts aren't functioning properly we have uh, orders that are unconstitutional that are as yet untested by the courts and we're supposed to just obey joyfully everything that we hear from government bureaucrats. It's also complete irony because COVID might be a tad bit more difficult for people to discern, but we all know this is the same government that not only when they're saying you have to uh, partner with us in education, they're also saying, but in our health curriculum, we won't mention marriage in our, in our teaching about sexuality, we'll have no reference to marriage. I will mention perversions of sexuality like homosexuality and transgenderism. Uh, the, the same government is, is trying to outlaw the preaching of God's word to just declare certain behaviors of sin. So the irony is that two things. Number one, civil disobedience right now is a way to talk to your magistrate. We've already talked about that before. And so it, 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 it's not falling into any area of criminal conduct in any way. No, a, these aren't criminal assembly. regulations. They don't fall under, they're not federal. They're not criminal. Right. You're not committing criminal acts. It's like getting a parking ticket, right. basically. And then um, secondly, it, it's, it's not criminal. And then and secondly, 
they're not going to be able to say give the same instructions six months from now when convert the conversion therapy bill is in or bill c7 yeah uh the, with respect made to right made. yeah absolutely so i i think that uh, by the way michael on the same point uh isn't it also the case that it's the same medical experts that we're supposed to obey right now who are saying that there aren't two biological sexes exactly. that transgenderism is uh, uh is acceptable that we must support it that we must actually teach it to our children and right now the question of bill c6 which you've just raised yeah. is whether you can provide any form of counsel uh in the direction of normative um a Christian understanding of marriage yeah. between male and female, that that would, for somebody struggling, that would actually be criminalized. These are the same health experts, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Or am I missing something? No, you're not missing it at all. And I think that's why we're so, I think that's why we're so amped up about telling the truth now. People say to me all the time, you know, why is this the hill that you're willing to die on? And I look back and I go, I, I'm not dying. Uh, I want to fight. This is the hill I want to fight on because the hill that I'm going to die on means that I've got to die. Uh, mm. That means we've already to some degree lost and it may be our blood that is shed. You can't die then, on any hill unless you get into the fight. That's exactly it. And actually many of the people who are, you know, really um, misguided. I was saying this to a gentleman yesterday, you know, it, it goes to your point, Joe. If you're not in the fight, not only are you not in it, but you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that's, I think that's why we're giving a clarion call. You know, you asked me uh, earlier, you asked us what, what the church could do. The church needs to be called back to worship, get back under the teaching of the word of God and uh, start understanding how to obey the things that God commands us mm -hmm. over uh, pressure outside. Well, and, and people that make that, accusation against you, Michael. They're thinking you're dying on the hill of COVID because this is the unprecedented, and Ryan, I'm doing my air quotes, the unprecedented <laughs> moment in Canada. But this virus is not what's unprecedented. What's unprecedented is these wholesale lockdowns, uh, incredible government spending, the enormous amount of suicides, uh, the amount of government infringement into our lives, the limiting of our freedoms, these are what we're seeing as unprecedented right now. And these are hills worth dying on. Right. And it's critical because this question of civil disobedience keeps coming up as though, you know, as though this table and those who are with us are some sort of mindless hood, Christian hoodlums, sort of the new fundamentalists running around committing civil disobedience. Look, uh, you know, may, maybe I could just, you know, ask our listeners, and especially those who may be opposed to us, the highest, what is the highest law of the land here? Okay. The highest law of the land is the charter. Okay. And the charter gives us certain fundamental freedoms. Now, if people were watching closely, a sleight of hand was pulled off earlier in the year, which was opposed by a number of MPPs. And that was Bill 195, which was at the, at the legislature, there was an attempt to, and a successful attempt to give unaccountable powers under the, I think the emergency COVID, how, whatever they called it, uh, to 
um, introduce certain um, restrictions. But the constitutionality of the various regulations um, uh, and um, these these various measures being kicked down by by um, uh, the chief medical officers and the the health boards. Uh, we're in a situation where we are able to appeal to the higher authority of the charter over these unprecedented, as you've said, Nathan, efforts at restrict that are historic in the sense that this is untested anywhere in the history of Canada. And especially since the charter, which was since the early 1980s, there has been no test of this nature really put to the Charter. This has not been addressed by the courts. And in addition, and in, in the Protestant tradition, the lesser magistrate, we have got sitting elected MPPs who are opposed to this, who are leading protests in regard to this, who voted against Bill 195. We are standing with elected officials in our own province who question the constitutionality and the legality of what one particular group of elected officials in government have done. We're appealing to the charter, and then, of course, above the charter itself, to God, to the supremacy of God. And as I think you pointed out, Michael, these are not federal criminal issues. These are like driving without insurance, possibly, or or collecting parking tickets. These are regulations, the legality of which, I mean, park, actually getting a parking ticket is far better established in the courts, its legality, than the situation within, than social distancing. So the, the, what we're dealing with now, and, and as you well know, we've sat down with MPPs. We've sat down with sitting MPPs and been told, point blank, that it is not elected officials who are running our government right now, that it is not actually MPs and MPPs who are running the government. It is so-called experts. It is that we are living right now in a technocracy. So listen up, all you guys who are writing articles about civil obedience and everything. You are talking about obeying unelected technocrats who are manipulating sitting MPPs and sitting MPs who are average people just as susceptible to propaganda as anybody else, susceptible to peer pressure, susceptible to pressure from other countries. Now, there's a much larger rebellion, and of course, money coming from the federal government um, and uh, threats from the federal government. There's a much larger rebellion going on in Britain right now, some 100 Tory MPs now in a massive kickback against government. Um, But the notion that to stand with MPPs and with the Charter is some irresponsible act of civil disobedience, um, I find utterly bizarre. What have these experts who are actually running the country accomplished? That's, that's a really good question. What have they actually accomplished these past eight months? Let me give you a real quick list, and then I want to go back to That is a good Mr. question, Jason. Joe. He, he, thank Can you, Can you answer that for let us me, right let, now? Yeah, let me answer it for you, because it was rhetorical. Here we go. Right, so what have our experts accomplished? Well, let me give you a few things. They've expertly failed to protect the elderly in the homes. That's what they expertly did. They've expertly failed to provide proper vaccine production capability, or they're even denying we've got it. 
they've expertly destroyed untold businesses and jobs. They've expertly destroyed people's emotional and mental health. They've expertly increased suicide and death from other diseases. They've expertly pushed 160 million people into poverty from around the globe, abject poverty. They've expertly torn up our constitutional rights and freedom with an absurd social experiment. And they're talking about a great reset. They're, we do need a great reset. It's called the reset of their heads, basically. We've, they've expertly refused to produce evidence for their actions coming even close to demonstrably justifiable that would suspend our civil liberties in Canada. That's they, charter language there. That, that's demonstrably charter. justifiable. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, it's charter language. Uh, they've expertly destroyed the economy and they're printing money, these experts, so fast our heads are spinning. The debt is growing so fast, our heads are spinning, and people have no conception. They think 2008 was a bad crash. We have no idea what's coming in 2021 and 2022 with what we have just done to the economy. It is going to be devastating. And I saw an article in, I think it was in the, the, from actually the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration in America and the United Kingdom saying that Canada has callously, callously abused its working class population. All these people employed safely by the government on taxpayer money, these experts, and actually everybody being paid by the state who can sit comfortably and be pro-lockdown, we have callously destroyed and are destroying working people in this country in favor of an elite, an elite who are in the positions of power and who have their uh, pensions tucked away safely and who don't feel nervous about their future because it's got some kind of guarantee, a government-backed guarantee. It's been, it is absolutely atrocious what's taking place for ordinary people. And should not the church be the voice of the fatherless, of the single mums, of the orphan, of these of the kids who are going to suffer the consequences of all of this, of children who have been in some provinces shut out of their own schools, their own classrooms. Where is the church's voice for the suffering and the oppressed? That's loving your neighbor. Do you, don't you think so, Michael? Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically when, when you're listing out the, the widow and the orphan, uh, we see under biblical law, the protection of the family. That's right. The, the state is here to protect the operating capacity, the, um, uh, the, the, the acquiring of capital, the saving of capital, um, the dispensing freely and generously of capital from the family. The family's supposed to be protected. And what you're seeing- and it's being asset stripped right now. Well, yeah. Family you you want to talk about robbing stripped. from someone? Who are yep. we robbing from? I'm, I'm dead in 40 years. It's going to be my kids who are going to be, and my grandchildren who are going to be paying this debt. We're actually- robbing from our children. So when people want to take a real moral high ground, like this is very, you know, this is bare bones. Like I, I, I speak to people all the time. They're, they're not meeting with family over Christmas. They can't even talk about this with certain family members. Uh, it's dividing individuals. And the reality of it is, is the, those of us who have maybe an outlier position right now, 
we're actually trying to fight for them. Like it's it's right. it's the most awkward thing in the world to say we see the government uh, stealing, we see the government lying, and we don't see a horrendous amount of sickness. Do you agree or disagree with any of that? They'll head nod and go, yeah, I agree with all that. And said, so what's your problem with me? And it's because we're trying to protect. It's because we're trying to invite the church back to promote the commands of God rather than being tossed back and forth on every whim of health doctrine. You know, did you guys ever think that you would think about that passage when we were talking about maturing in Christ in Ephesians 4, that we would no longer be tossed back and forth mm-hmm. on every whim of doctrine? Did you ever think that it would be health doctrine? And state doctrine. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's a new category for us. And I think one of the most important texts that, that we can sort of focus on as we wrap this up um, is that God's not given us a spirit of fear but a love and of, of love for our neighbor yeah. of power and of a sound mind. Yeah. And if ever we needed love, power and sound mind, and those three things go together. Yes, they do. Right. They are intimately interwoven with one another. Um, it's now. Yeah. And one of the things I think, you know, as I've sort of wrestled with this because I have scratched my head so many times, genuinely trying to think, and I did it from the beginning back in March. How could there be such hysterical, in my mind, actually, a, uh, an, uh, a, a semi-delusional reaction to this situation that it's actually driven by a spirit of fear and what's the root of fear? Sin. And I was uh, looking at, a, at something in Matthew Henry, uh, and as a team we were looking at it actually earlier in the, earlier in the week. Um, where he's commenting on Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee, in other words, people are in fear, even when nothing's really chasing them. But the righteous, because of this love and power and sound mind, are bold as a lion. And this is what uh, Matthew Henry says in his commentary, and I love this. What continual frights those are subject to that go on in wicked ways? Guilt in the conscience makes men a terror to themselves so that they are ready to flee when no one pursues. Like one that absconds for debt who thinks everyone he meets a bailiff. Though they pretend to be easy, there are secret fears which haunt them wherever they go so that they fear where no present or imminent danger is. Those that have made God their enemy and know it cannot but see the whole creation at war with them, and therefore can have no true enjoyment of themselves, no confidence, no courage, but a fearful looking of, for, of judgment. Sin makes men cowards. Well. That was an uh, incredible uh, statement. And when you think about all the things that are going on, this sort of coalescing right now of economic fears, COVID fears, climate fears, it's as though men think the whole of creation is at war with them. When you make yourself an enemy of God, you don't see creation as God's good, good creation, struggling under sin and being reconciled to God in Christ. You see everything threatening to crush you and destroy you. And the only answer when you're racked with guilt like that and sin 
to your fears is control. It's to then take fear and then deploy fear on a population so that you can control them, so that the universe, the creation that you fear is attempting to is attempting to crush you and them, that you can somehow get control of it, the illusion of control over the world, uh, rather than God being the creator, the governor, the ruler, the sustainer, the redeemer of all things. And this, to me, at the end of the day, in the last analysis, with all the detail we've touched on today, this is at the root of it. Guilt, the problem of sin, and man's fear of the creation itself, that creation is somehow at war with them and that they must wrest control of reality and over people because they don't really believe that God in Jesus Christ is reconciling all things to himself and that he's given us a ministry of reconciliation, which he has. Wow, well, that's uh, it's a good word to close on. Um, and I just think that, uh, Nathan, you mentioned earlier the, the people who have been, uh, who've been writing, who have been talking about wanting to speak out, who are frustrated with the, the current narrative that uh, has a mounting grow uh, mounting sum of credible evidence against it. It's not, it's not the Christian's position to be fearful. It's not, it's not the Christian's right to be fearful. This is, uh, this is not the way that, uh, that God has designed us to be. So I think, I hope that that's a, uh, you know, an encouragement and, uh, something to some, some exhortation to take heart. And I think we'll leave it at that. We've had, uh, lots to talk about and I'm sure we'll get back to it again. Thank you for staying with us. This has been Worldview Wednesday on the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Don't forget to check out ezrainstitute.ca for more resources, and we'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year a 